0: Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. On this episode, what happens when yeast goes wandering? Sit back and find out as I talk with Nick of the Yeast Bay. Important note here our audio got cut off at the beginning, but the big news is the Yeast Bay is going full time, and they're moving from the Bay Area to the Bays of Portland, Oregon. So sit back as we prepare to join our conversation in Medias Reyes. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well... It's time to replace that old dog-eared copy because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages and every chapter has been updated and expanded and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com
1: Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malthouse Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including The Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro level equipment and the best in cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same day order processing, and guaranteed two day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply.
0: The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Question though is you know, where's the bay in Portland? Uh we've we've actually found a couple small ones. They're they're bay looking.
2: <laughs> they're along a couple of the rivers. And we actually we will be getting a new logo. We're currently uh redesigning it right now, and I'm pretty excited about what it's gonna look like. It's gonna be very similar with the bridge uh and some other things. I don't want to give it a uh, totally away, but uh we, we will have a new logo and it it will have a small bay in it. Uh <laughs> that's all that's all I'll say for now. And that is that is the first question I've gotten. Everybody asked me. Are you going to change the name? And uh, absolutely not. We built a really great brand and, um, you know, we love the name. Everybody loves the name. So it's, it's something we're going to keep.
0: It makes sense to keep the name. It's just, now it's funny because you're going to have to retool the legends. We were born in California and we're proud of that. We, we wear that as a badge honor. So let me ask, going full time, I mean, I mean, you've been working this deal pretty well with White Labs where they do propagation and manufacturing of your, your colonies. You're doing, in the past when we talked, you've you've had a lot of fun with the the isolation and the identification aspect. So what changes now that you're going full-time? Yeah, well, I think some of the main changes
2: that full-time I have, you know, another 40 hours a week of my life back to focus on my customers and to focus on growth of the company. So, you know, over the five plus years I've been in business now, uh, we've actually grown pretty aggressively, just organically. And this has all been word of mouth, you know, we don't do any direct marketing, uh, just because I have a day job right now. It's even hard for me to go, go out and, and touch base with a lot of brewers on a regular basis because things are just so busy. So getting that time back will be great to go out and meet with customers. And, uh, I definitely want to, you know, hit the streets a lot more and go out, you know, maybe once a month travel to, you know, some cities where a lot of brewers use our yeast and touch base with them more frequently and kind of say, Hey, you know, how, how are things going?
0: Taste their beers a little bit more frequently uh, be able to kind of offer a little bit more advice to them. It's going to be it's going to be very exciting. Has there been a brewery out there that has been using your yeast that blew you away with what they made with it? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely in Portland. I mean, where we're moving up to, we do work with
2: a number of breweries up there. And it's been, I think that's what's been most exciting is going up there on house hunting trips. I've actually been able to touch base. And I'd say, you know, before it was maybe 20% house hunting, 80% brewery hopping. Uh, which was really fun because we got to go to a lot of breweries and and taste a lot of the beers, and that is that's really exciting to me. And that's I think it's important to kind of taste that final product because it really informs me a lot better on how brewers are using our cultures, and it informs me better on how I can uh, let other brewers know how
0: to use our cultures. Has there been any surprises like anything that yeah, a brewer pulled out on you, and you were like, "Oh, I I never thought of that." Not really. I mean, it, it has been pretty surprising the
2: difference in character that some brewers can coax out of different yeasts, especially Britannomyces, where I'll taste, you know, something made with one of our strands from one brewery and then something from another brewery. And it's just kind of blows me away. And I I, I can't mention the brewery because they actually so we, we produce a custom part number for them uh, so that, you know, they really don't have to disclose to anybody which yeast they're using. They kind of hold that as a trade secret. Uh, but they've been able to coax an incredible amount of character out of our Hazy Days blend, which is our new Hazy IPA blend that we released maybe uh, three months ago but they've used that for their house use for a while now and the amount of character they're able to get out of it is just uh, absolutely fantastic and it's it's even like bigger and juicier than any of the the beers i've tasted with it before from other breweries so it's pretty
0: impressive yeah there's a, a lot of different things that can can cause yeast to do a lot of fun
2: oh yeah and they they have a lot of fun toys in that brewery too so they uh they definitely put them to good use
0: uh in the production of that style of beer i think there are a good number of brewers out there who they're not so much about the beer they're about the the shiny little toys. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you put them to good use, you know, it's uh, it's, it's a good thing for everybody. Right. Well, and speaking of toys, uh, what new toys do you have for Brewers to play with? Ah, in terms of cultures, we actually have, we have a lot of good stuff coming down the pipeline here. And uh,
2: I actually think before I, I move on to any of the cultures that we have, you know, taking the East Bay full time in Portland is can be a really great opportunity for me to not just grow the business and touch base with more customers, but really to put a, a heavier focus on our beta program. And in terms of, I guess, new toys, I'll have a few new toys in terms of propagation equipment where I'll be able to scale my beta program up uh, you know, more than an order of magnitude what I have it now. So be able, being able to pump out a lot of those really new, unique cultures and get those out to brewers, I mean, that's the whole reason I started this company and the whole mission of my business uh, is to get new cultures out to people. So to be able to scale that up is going to be uh, pretty exciting, but definitely one major change that we won't be making, you know, as, as I knew I was going to move and take the East Bay full time. an obvious question was, am I going to branch off on my own? Am I going to just, you know, start my own facility and take the East Bay, um, you know, totally had do everything on my end. So isolation, characterization, and manufacturing. And that was kind of a difficult decision for me to make. And, you know, basically over a period of time, I just wrote out what I thought the pros and cons would be of whether I continued to work with White Labs on a contract manufacturer basis or uh, whether I decided not to. And quite honestly, the only benefit I could really think of was uh, an increase in margin, which is always great. You know, if you make, you know, everybody wants to make more money, uh, which is awesome. But ultimately, the the list of cons was a lot longer. And really that the loss of that relationship that I've curated with White Labs over the last you know, almost six years now is is something really special. It's a great relationship, and I think we both have a lot of loyalty to each other. And you know, I think I, I almost owe it to them to continue to work with them. I, I I can't imagine just saying, "Hey, thanks for helping me grow my business this large," and then, okay, bye. <laughs> um, I guess that's just not something that's in my character. I couldn't do that. And then thinking about the need for uh, further investment, so I don't have the cash to make a giant facility. So that means I would have to take a lot of time uh, with my business down to go out and seek investment, which I think I could do, but quite frankly, it would result in a loss of ownership for me. Uh, Whereas I'd be giving up a lot of my business during a time where I think I'm going to actively start to grow it. And on top of that, uh, I'd really be beholden to investors where right now I get to produce the cultures I want because I'm in complete control of the company. And I get to totally focus on new and unique cultures where if I have people heavily invested, I might find myself in a situation where, uh, they're saying, hey, what are, the, what are the 10 best-selling strains in the world, of which none of them I currently sell probably? And they'd say, all right, start cranking those out. <laughs> and at that point, I think I would start to deviate so far from my original mission of the East Bay uh, that it would just become something totally different entirely. So uh, I think it's safe to say that in the foreseeable future, and I think in, in perpetuity, we are going to continue to work with White Labs. Uh, they've been fantastic partners and I think that partnership really is guaranteed to develop more over time, with the potential for a joint venture up in the Portland area, which I think we're both really excited about, and was a big topic of conversation when I met with them the other week. So uh, the amount of opportunities that that relationship offers to us and to White Labs, I think, is, is substantial for both of us, and we're both really
0: excited about uh, the move up to Portland for me and, and going forward as a as more of a partnership. I mean, the one thing I always think about with with Yeast Bay is. You you always have such unique items uh, for people to use. Yeah, you know, I mean, even when you're looking at something like, you know, your hazy blend or, you know, the saison blends, those blends provide something different than I think that you get from pretty much any other yeast manufacturer out there. So I think one of the things I've always liked about your company, and I'm happy to hear that you're saying that you're continuing, is the fact that you're not out there trying to recreate the stuff that you can get from white yeast or that you can get from white labs, you know, that you are providing something different.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, there. I think for some brewers, there is a certain value in having, you know, more providers, more manufacturers of a given product, and there is inherent value in that. But uh, I think the the real value for brewers is creating new cultures, um, you know, new yeast and bacteria, new strains and blends that really creates a novel character form. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of brewers are looking for. And I, like I, I say this all the time, I think the easiest way to define my relationship with White Labs right now is... I'm basically a small research and development arm for them and they're a large manufacturing arm for the East Bay. But as we go forward, I think you're going to see definitely more of a uh, a partnership pop up where uh, they allow me to focus as I do on, you know, isolating and characterizing new yeast, but trying to get something that's more of a joint venture for us to be uh, uh, both invested in and both really putting a strong focus on that is is very exciting. But at the same time, having that same quality system, and that manufacturing capability. The key moving forward and what I think a, a lot of our discussions about in San Diego when I went down there recently is how do we streamline a lot of this? How do we actually integrate these things more efficiently? You know, not just to make things easier for us, but uh, to make things better for our customers as well and to make things uh, a little bit easier on the order end and on the fulfillment end. So that that, that further integration is, I think, going to be uh, crucial to providing the best experience for all the people that buy our cultures.
0: Good. I mean, I think if it in- if it increases the ability for people to get their hands on your on your toys, then I think that's a, a good thing. And yeah, I mean, it sounds like you guys have a, a, a great working relationship, so there's a lot of a lot of trust there. Absolutely, and that's the kind of thing that takes
2: you know it's taken us five to six years to get to this point. It's uh it's 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 been a long road. And the nice thing is that you know it's like any business relationship, you'll have missteps here and there. But I've always really been amazed at how fast we're able to get over small hurdles or even bigger ones that that come up and, and find a productive way to move forward and, and to learn from it. It's been, it's been really cool. I mean, this is obviously the first time I've ever started a business and, you know, kind of feeling this out organically has been, uh, uh an interesting experience for me, but I, I definitely couldn't ask for better partners to work with.
0: Let's uh, let's talk about toys. Uh, what sort of new toys do you have for people? We talked about the hazy, uh, the hazy blend. Yeah. The hazy blend we put out about three or four months ago. Like I said, the one brewery and, uh, um,
2: California, that I visited recently, they're doing phenomenal things with it. But a lot of brewers have sent me beers that I'm just blown away with the character they're able to get out of it. It's, I think it's a little bit easier to work with than just our Vermont Ale. Uh, they like it because they can harvest it a little bit easier and it's a little bit more predictive in terms of character and attenuation. Um, so we've had that one out for about three months now. But uh, two other bread strains that we've had out are also our TYB 307 and our TYB 415. So both of those are. Uh, Brachanomyces brexellensis strains that I believe we released these maybe four or five months ago. I believe these predate the Hazy Days blend. But the 307 kind of has like this lemony tartness with a mild barnyard funkiness to it. It's from a California brewery. Really fantastic strain. Uh, Great as a primary or uh, uh, extended aging uh, kind of co-fermenter. Uh, and then our QYB 4 and 5 is from a Colorado brewery that's mostly tropical fruit and just dominated by pineapple uh, and produces a very dry beer, very crisp. That's the kind of strain I like to use on maybe like a, a hazy, 100% Brett style beer that's maybe a little bit heavier on hops that I want it really dry and almost kind of like champagne carbonation. Uh, it's a fantastic strain for that. And then we actually have two, one strain and one blend that we're going to be releasing hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Uh, one is a combination of our Northeastern Abbey Strain and then our Bertanomyces Brexelensis Strain TYV207. So both of those are actually from the same brewery um, in the Northeast. And the combination is just really fantastic. It actually, it recreates really well uh, the character of the beers that I get from that brewery. Uh, the combination of the Saccharomyces and the Brexelensis is just fantastic. It It has this really dry character to it with a lot of pear-type esters. And then just a really nice background of, like, mixed berries and, and, and kind of, like, sweet, almost like sweet tarts. Really delicious. Um,
0: and I'm actually drinking a test beer that I made with that right now, which is uh, very good. <laughs> Making media, talking beer, and drinking beer at the same time. The one I'm still trying to get on a hunt for is uh, a Brett Strain that produces strawberry notes. So, hint, hint. Right.
2: Right. We actually, so, we, we do. We've offered one of our original lineup was... Uh, low Christie blend where it's a combination of two strains from the same brewery but uh, one of them produces and I'll, I'll say it's actually not phantom I can say that but it produces a really intense strawberry character we actually have a number of breweries that have sent me beers over the years uh, produced that strain and it's uh it's it's really fantastic uh, the amount of strawberry character
0: you're able to get from just the yeast is um, uh, really impressive we've got these strains and uh, I don't know how the how the heck you keep track of the numbers and what it, what they mean and like how they, you know, what the flavors are that that they're produced, but hats off to you for that. Stepping outside of the world of Bertana going more into your world of doing isolation work. uh, In your last email, you actually had, I'm not even going to try and say the culture's name because I will screw it up so badly. It's not even funny, but you had like a, a whole new, what really felt like a whole new tool for brewers to play with.
2: Right. Um, and that is—it's uh, kind of an interesting strain. Uh, the sequencing result came back as uh, Mesnecaria rikauffi. It's a—it's a yeast. It's a nectar specialist. So as you can imagine, it's basically evolved in, on a substrate that doesn't have a lot of maltose present. So uh, immediately, I, I figured and verified that it's a very poor fermenter of maltose. But there are a couple other potential uses for it. One, I'm actually doing some trials in cider right now, which actually are producing really nice aromas, a really interesting fermentation profile there. Uh, And then another is co-fermenting. So basically using the mesinical year or coffee with a strain of either botanomyces or saccharomyces because these yeasts can produce a decent amount of glucosidases, which can actually have an effect on molecules like hop glycosides, where... You have this really flavor-active molecule, this aglycone that's bound to a sugar. So together as, as a bound component, as a single molecule, they really don't, you can't detect a lot of character from it. But when you can cleave that linkage and free that flavor molecule, that's where you start getting this, this flavor-active bioconversion in the beer. So we're looking at doing a couple trials, actually. We're working with one brewery, uh, Altbrow, which is a newer brewery in the Bay Area. It's uh, started by Tim Decker. And he's really putting a, a big focus on native ingredients, local ingredients. And actually, I was out with him doing this wild capture uh, when we discovered this. So uh, he's going to be working on co-fermenting this with a number of Britannomyces strains. Uh, and then we're working with another uh, larger brewery that we do quite a bit of business with. Uh, they're interested in using it with our Hazy Days blend and our Vermont. So we're going to be doing a lot of side-by-side trials of you know, either a strain or a blend of Brett with Beshnikawa or and then without. And then the same with uh, the Saccharomyces, the Vermont Ale, and the uh, Hazy Days blend uh, with and without. So let's actually talk the story of the capture. Uh, the, the capturing of yeast is is very romanticized, I think. Um, you know, Tim just wants to put a really strong focus for his brewery on, um, you know, native ingredients, local ingredients. So he really was into trying to capture a native yeast that he could use in his fermentations and was really excited about that idea. Uh, and you know, I had met with him a few times he's used a number of my other cultures to make some of his original line of beers uh, and he's just a great guy and he's like hey I, I'd like to you know go out with you and maybe try to get some wild captures so we went out in the Berkeley Hills and uh, just kind of foraging around uh, we were actually doing it while they were making his uh, Indiegogo video so it was cool we got some, uh, some interesting footage of it uh, but really just going around and trying to find you know some detritus you know maybe some berries and these were actually off of this was off of let's see uh, a berry plant flower i believe um that was kind of just like oozing with nectar and uh yeah it was we something we it's like plucked off and basically we i take that back and i go through a number of different steps uh the first is i basically enrich it so i'll actually just take that material and dump it in maybe 50 milliliters of you know about 10 30 gravity wort i ph that down to ph4 with lacta, uh, lactic acid uh make sure i inhibit any bacteria i don't want in there and then uh, typically, just a few hot pellets of something high alpha acid uh, per liter. Uh, I autoclave that up and basically grow it up for about a week. And then I'll take that material. So, basically, what I'm doing there is I'm trying to enrich whatever can grow in a lower pH environment, can grow, you know, can metabolize maltose. I'm trying to enrich for that population. I will then take that and plate that out to get single colonies uh, on solid media. And from there, I'll select those colonies, grow those up, and basically make a stable minus 80 bank of them. And then I send them off to my sequencing guy who um, does his thing
0: and, and tells me what each of those colonies is. This one being a, a wild yeast that specializes in nectar, how does that change? Because you said that you could tell that it wasn't a fan of maltose when you, when you were growing it up, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of, and you know, like malt-based
2: extract has a percentage of glucose and sucrose and fructose. There are different sugars in there that they can utilize. Uh, Typically, I use maltose to hopefully select for something that can use that. Um, This obviously didn't. And I'm unsurprised because basically you're selecting an organism that has been growing in an environment that obviously, you know, there's not just maltose hanging. You know, there aren't a lot of uh, uh, maltose plants out there. So it's not a sugar that I think you see very commonly in the wild. So it's not a
0: surprise that a lot of wild captures actually uh, don't ferment maltose very well. It's not like they've been uh, trained for centuries in in the fine art of beer making, right? Yeah, they haven't
2: just been constantly used to ferment a malt based substrate and then constantly reused and selected for over and over again. They've been, you know, hanging out on flowers that have a much much simpler sugar profile.
0: Let's revisit the yeah the the hop cleaving that you talked about because I think this is the one that sounds to me like the most exciting use of this, right? And it's going to be the the thing that's going to make yeah, IPA lovers love IPAs even more or something. What I got from what you told me is that basically we have molecules in, in, in the hops that we have when we dissolve them into wort that basically bound to a sugar. So some sort of flavor, a flavor compound or aroma compound bound to a sugar. And because it's bound in that particular way, we can't we can't sense it. Now, in theory, this string then comes along and produces an enzyme that subtracts that sugar away and allows that sugar to be fermented or while releasing the flavor compound.
2: Right. So basically I believe they're bound by a beta one four linkage. So something like an enzyme like beta glucosidase can actually cleave that linkage in between them. Uh, and you know, a lot of different hops have a lot of different hop glycosides. So that flavor active molecule, that aglycone, actually varies uh, in terms of the, the specific hop glycoside. So it's not as much getting, you know, you're not going to get this, it's not even the difference in character as much as it is, you know, biotransformation is a, is a big buzz term right now. It's, you know, the the beer actually evolving and and changing over time as a result of production of those enzymes, which is something actually, uh, I think a lot of brewers really geek out about and that they could have, you know, a vertical of beers that was maybe, and especially something like uh, a dry hop or tantamites beer say, something that would age well. And you have this vertical that's like, you know, two months, four months, six months, eight month old, and just to see how the production of that enzyme changes those hot glycosides over time and how the beer evolves, that's what's really exciting.
0: Not just the character in and of itself, but the the evolution of that character is what's really exciting. I tend to think in the beer world that uh, brewers tend to do as much as possible to you know, make their beers stable. This beer that you had is going to taste like the beer that you had. I mean, we're talking more and more about, you know, eh, uh, who cares about the stability <laughs> let's, let's have some fun let's see what happens
2: and it's not even the stability i think brewers now they're just uh you know they're they're going balls to the wall with creativity they don't you know they're they're throwing the conventional wisdom out the window and they're basically saying i have creative license to do whatever i want with these beers and you know i'm going to make this beer and if i think i can make it a little bit different and a little bit better then i'm going to do that too <laughs> and that's cool it's exciting uh to see brewers kind of branch out. Where, they don't they don't feel that, that rigid structure where they have to just keep producing the same thing. And I, I go to a lot of breweries around here that the same beer is often a little bit different because you have these brewers experimenting
0: and trying different things with the same beer. And that's I mean, you know, I think to a lot of beer drinkers that's exciting. Yeah. Well, and I think that whole idea of, you know, these are my core four plus a seasonal is pretty dead. Having a core lineup is is great, but also being willing to break the mold of that lineup and experiment a little bit, uh is, is also exciting what pulls me back into say a tap room, right? You know, if I'm a small brewery, I'm still probably making a good portion of my money from my tap room. So what pulls people back into a tap room? And it's always going to be, Hey, you know, I got this new thing to try. So it totally makes sense that brewers are getting kind of more of a license to play, you know, particularly since the tap room now allows a brewery to act a little more like a brew pub, right? I mean, that was always one of the the good things about uh, a a brew pub in the back in the day was, Hey, you know, I, I can release a new beer every week. It's a much more flexible uh, structure for them, which is, you know, which is great. What other trends do you see uh, people playing with then? You know, like, or what other trends do you hope to enable with your new products? Well, one trend, and actually we do have, I mentioned the Northeastern Abbey plus
2: the TYB 207, the new product. Uh, Another product we have is, it's a strain, I'm not quite sure if you've heard of it. It's uh, the Simonetis. It's like a Lithuanian farmhouse yeast. Uh, I got a sample of this maybe oh, i want to say maybe a year ago or more from uh, Lars Garschel, who's the same one we got our Sigmunds Vovi from, which is a really fantastic strain and this this whole kind of uh, European farmhouse style strains are something that people are really getting interested in, and a lot of the a lot of it stems from the fact that you can ferment these guys at insane temperatures. They just, they, they produce really nice, really consistent results. Uh, they're just very hardy yeast. And I think especially on the homebrew front, people love that, uh, because it's just so much easier for them to use. It's fewer factors for them to have to control. And um, the Simonetis, I had some isolates from it initially and, you know, I always bank source material right when I get it. So I can go back to it and I wasn't too busy about like two or three months ago. And it's like, you know, I'm going to give this another go. Uh, kind of try to sift through this material again. So I isolated it and I streaked it out and, uh, you know, selected some colonies again. And, uh, this time I actually found one that I think is, is a real winner. It's, it's, it ferments or attenuates slightly less than the Sigmund Vosk speak. So it needs a little bit more mouthfeel to the beer, but it's a really nice mix of this orange and tropical fruit esters. And I think my, my wife said, and she grew up in Alaska. Uh, so she was, and she went to Hawaii with her parents a lot for vacation. It was like the places people in Alaska go, I guess, but she said she always drank POG, and it was something that like she just that that taste is just like burned into her brain. And she, right when she tasted, she's like, "Oh, this is just like this this POG type character," which I think is an acronym for like pineapple, orange, and guava, or papaya, orange, and guava. Yeah, it's uh, really fantastic. It's but it's got that same kind of POG character. So I was really excited that I I was able to finally pull something out of there that uh, has has some good value. So we're going to start offering that hopefully in the next. You know, two to three weeks. Do you have a name that you've attached to it? Um, I think
0: it's just gonna be Simonetis Lithuanian farmhouse Going
2: Gotta keep it simple.
0: I mean there's so many different names for things out here now that it sometimes gets a bit confusing. I, I gotta ask, you know, now that you're eyeing this move up to Portland, are I assume that you're already planning foraging hunts to go figure out if there's unique Portland cultures?
2: Eventually yes. Uh right now it's kind of consumed with figuring out how to so I have I had some help from a lawyer to help me legally move my business up to portland and unfortunately i you know oregon's great but they don't allow something called conversion so i actually had to start a new company and i to dissolve my company here so it's kind of a bit of a pain um but i had somewhat help with that so a lot of my time has been kind of taken up with figuring that kind of stuff out those logistics uh wrapping up things in my day job make sure i don't leave any loose ends and then getting things ready to uh you know move our whole life up
0: well i'm sure portland is going to be excited to receive more yeasty goodness particularly if it means that there'll be uh, more playful beers if, if you're a yeast freak and you live in the portland area it's uh it's i think it's a pretty good time for you. you're you pretty happy you got
2: uh why yeast imperial and now another company moving up there so it's uh, i think they're they're probably pretty happy more options you know on the wild isolation front though we actually uh I've kind of been helping people out. Like I helped Tim Decker out, uh, kind of isolate some new yeast in the Oakland Hills. And uh, I work a lot with the brewery in kind of the lower Midwest. Uh, I don't know if I should really say which one, but they had a number of spontaneous fermented beers that they said, Hey, these beers turned out really great. Um, they were super slow to start, but like the character that developed over time is just, you know, substantially better than a lot of the, the spontaneous beers you've had. Uh, will you sift through some of these cultures? So I actually pulled a number of really interesting organisms uh, out of those, spontaneous fermented, uh, those spontaneously fermented beers as well. We got a, a strain of wicker Hamomyces anomalous, anomalous, uh, which personally for me, when I was growing it, it's a little too ethyl acetate-y, but um, I guess we'll, we'll see where it goes in, in anaerobic fermentation, the kind of character it produces. And then we got three strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, uh, all uh, genetically distinct from one another. So, And all producing very interesting character. They're all attenuative. They all ferment maltose. Uh, So that's pretty exciting stuff. I'm about to send those strains back off to the brewery, and uh, they're going to start experimenting with those. And I believe they're going to give me free license to offer these uh, as products if uh, they find something that they really like and we find something that produces a really uh, interesting, unique character. So uh, we're pretty excited
0: uh, for that project as well. That sounds awesome. And I wonder if that's going to be a direction where a lot of these – Funky wild breweries are going to go to where you know they start to play with doing local isolation, but instead of always depending upon having appropriate airborne inoculation or even barrel inoculation, if they're just going to try and isolate the things they think works well for them, and then make sure those are involved in the mix always. Absolutely, and that's I think that's
2: that's a great way for them to get not total consistency, but a measure of consistency where they have this spontaneously fermented beer that has this really fantastic character, and they're able to pull an organism out that you know, is largely responsible for that character. That's helpful for them. And, you know, you're never going to pull out one strain from those beers that it's like, oh, this is like, this is the God strain. This produces every molecule that's in this beer that, and it's just perfect. Uh, But they can try to get some measure of consistency, which I think is, uh, you know, that's exciting for these brewers to be able to try to recreate as best they can. And they know it's always going to be a little different, which I think is also exciting for them. But to be able to try to
0: recreate part of that flavor profile consistently is uh, something that they're definitely excited about. It's almost like other brewers have done that over the centuries. Now we're just doing it with the funky stuff. Before we leave, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to ask you, I know that we were talking briefly that lactobacillus is not so much uh, your focus, but there was a thing that came out that uh, they said that they're now starting to plan to split lactobacillus into like 10 to 23 different uh, genera it, 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 as a, as a, biologist who's working with fermenty type things. How do you feel? Well, I think it's just, it's not really a surprise. I think as, as we go down the road of understanding
2: a lot more about the genetics of all these different strains and all these different uh, genus and species, uh, we're going to see that they're actually, in fact, things that we think are very similar to each other are in fact quite different. I think that's, you know, we have the, the dawn of whole genome sequencing where we don't have to just look at this tiny little window to compare organisms we can look at the entire genome to, act, to actually determine how similar or different they are. And that's, it's a really exciting time in, in, in molecular biology and in microbiology to be able to do that. And the fact that we're starting to realize that a lot of this, these organisms are way more different than we thought they were, is uh, I don't think that should surprise anybody as we get more genetic information available.
0: So this is not the uh, microbiology equivalent of Pluto is no longer a planet?
2: No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think it's actually quite exciting uh, for biologists to to understand that wow these are actually really different in all these all these ways that when we were peeking through this tiny window we we couldn't tell but now we have all this genetic information that we're able to process and uh, you know the combination of whole genome sequencing and bioinformatics and the ability to actually process all that data uh, is 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 pretty cool and pretty exciting yeah it's amazing what can happen when you have more information oh I was going to say going back to that um, those spontaneously fermented beers. I think for a lot of brewers, too, and even for home brewers, spontaneous captures, you know, they have this yeast, but there's always this risk that maybe there's something in there that's, you know, slightly pathogenic, something that maybe you don't want in there. So I think going the route of isolation and, and, and characterizing these strains and sequencing them is something important for a lot of these breweries for reusing organisms, where the, the, the material that they're reusing is a bit more known of an, of an entity to them where it's not as as much of a wild card. And uh, I actually have a buddy who, uh, he helps me out with a lot of my sequencing, and he's actually looking at starting a small sequencing company because he's looking at how, you know, for the home brewer and even for the craft brewer, it's very expensive. If you want to even do the isolation yourself and you select colonies and and you streak those out and you have these pure cultures that you send off, it's very expensive to get them uh, sequenced if you do it from an outside company. So he's looking at actually starting a small business that really caters to people that do these kinds of spontaneous captures and these spontaneous fermentations, where either you can send in isolates you did yourself, or you can send in, you know, an unisolated sample, and they'll go through the isolation and they'll actually give you some sequencing results and strains back, but do it at 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 a price that's cost effective. And um, I'm kind of helping him put his business plan together, and I'm, it's it's pretty exciting because I think that has a lot of value for homebrewers that. You know, you can't, you can't afford to spend $250 a sample uh, in order to get things sequenced. But if it's more cost-effective, I think a lot more people would be willing to, uh, you know, take their, their spontaneously fermented beers that turned out really well and maybe try to pull some things out of them and, and, and get them sequenced. And, and it's, it's definitely a very ex- uh, exciting time with that in regards to uh, 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 so
0: that. It's amazing what can happen as uh, technology gets further and further available. And you know more readily usable by you know folks who aren't multi million uh, dollar sort of organizations. Yeah, and ev- I mean even even for me, it's it's uh, it's pretty difficult with all the sequencing that we do
2: to keep it cost effective. We don't we don't do it in house. We I have you know a friend that helps me out with this, and um, that's how we're able to keep it cost effective and do all this sequencing. But uh, if I were to pay for this myself, that's I mean that's it's a, it's a pretty big financial burden to actually sift through all this, provided the fact that. Ninety-five percent of what I get sequenced, I'll probably never offer or make a dime off of. Uh, so to spend a pretty exorbitant amount of
0: money getting things sequenced per sample, um, that's it, it. It becomes problematic. Better, faster, cheaper. That's how. That's how things are are tending to trend.
2: Hopefully, as our friend develops that company, if uh, if he can find a way to make this work, uh, that's definitely something that will help him promote because I think it has tremendous value for. Uh, like I said, both the homebrewing and craft brewing communities to make that kind of thing more cost effective, determining what organisms you have, determining that they're safe and giving you a solid sequencing result of saying this is in fact what this is. Uh, that's, uh, I think has, holds tremendous value for people that are really starting to get into the spontaneously fermented beer realm, which is becoming more popular, you know, throughout the United
0: States. Brewers like to have information. So if we can get information to brewers and in, into brewers hands, it'll be a good thing. Uh, and i just wanted to make sure that we give a hat tip to the uh, milk the funk group uh, on facebook which is actually where i caught this article about lactobacillus being split into you know many 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 different uh, types so a hat tip to those guys if you have any interest in in spontaneous or wild or funky fermentations definitely go check out that group it's a wealth of information that that is the place to go the milk the milk the funk wiki is also just an absolute wealth of information that uh,
2: you won't be disappointed if you're ever looking for information on Anything funky, spontaneous, wild, whatever, go to the Milk the Funk wiki, search for it for five minutes. I guarantee you'll find what you're looking for. And, and if you don't, contact Dan Pixley, and he'll make sure, A, you find it, and B, he gets it up on the wiki.
0: The guy's incredible.
2: I, I, don't, know, I don't know how he does all that. Blows my mind.
0: Superheroes uh, don't always wear capes. So, uh, again, that's uh, Milk the Funk milk the funk nick thank you so much for taking the time uh to talk to us and you know, i'm really excited to see what is going to end up happening with the yeast bay as you have to go find a new baylet uh so that you can uh, maintain your name I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, when, I, when I'm up there next weekend, I'll text you a picture of what the logo's going to look like. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a nice shot of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm really excited to see what people are going to start doing playing around with some of these new cultures and, you know, what other things that you have uh, coming down the bike. So uh, don't forget, folks, if you want to be able to get your hands on some of these fine strains. Yep. If you
2: want to find our strains, you can check us out uh, on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash the yeast bay. Or uh, you can check out our website at com. That's T-H-E-Y-E-A-S-T-B-A-Y.com. And um, always feel free to shoot me an email as well. I'd give you my personal email, but it's a little bit long at Nicholas and Pelletieri at So I'm just going to say email us at support at if you have any questions. Uh, and I'm always happy to, to answer any emails I come across.
0: Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the brew files. We hope you enjoyed this time talking with Nick and his new adventure and new toys. Can't wait to see what comes of some of these new critters with their hop cleaving capabilities and bio transformational goodness. And what new things will come from being full time in a beer crazy town. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at expbrewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Nawazad, helping the animals and soldiers of Afghanistan. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.